through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI radio listener. Yes, it is Joey Watson here and you are listening to Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and talk through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today, Auntie Norma Ingram. Norma grew up on a mission outside Cowra, the youngest of 11 under the oppressive conditions of the Aboriginal Welfare Act. It was on the back of her mother's passion for education that she moved to inner-city Sydney at the age of 11, and education would be the defining theme in her life. At the coalface of the Black Rights Movement in the 70s, she set up the first Indigenous childcare organisation, she witnessed the establishment of the Tent Embassy, and became the first Indigenous woman to graduate from Harvard in the US. Right now, Norma is the Labour candidate running for New South Wales Parliament in the seat of Newtown, the same seat her family had moved to over a generation earlier. Only weeks out from the election, Auntie Norma, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you, Joe. Happy to be here. Norma, before we get into your life, I was wondering if we could start off with a bit of a history lesson. Um, we are currently broadcasting on the land of the Gadigal people. You are a Wiradjuri woman, which is to our west, and no doubt some people might be listening on Wiradjuri country today. Could, could you tell me a bit of the history of this region? Uh, well, it's uh, Wiradjuri, and in our language, which I was forbidden to speak, and my people were fit- forbidden to speak, we say Yama. So I get a lot of people to say Yama to acknowledge each other. And um, you know, Yama actually means more than hello. It, it means I see you. You are important. You are special. And so if I can get the whole of Australia saying Yama, that would be wonderful. <laughs> but it's part of my Wiradjuri language. Um, the Wiradjuri country uh, goes from the other side of the Blue Mountains, Katoomba, out to Hay. And it's north of roundabout Dubbo Peak Hill. And it goes all the way down the border uh, to Albury, um, down uh, the New South Wales uh, Victorian border. So it's quite huge. And... Uh, both my mother and my father um, were Raj, but my mother, it's it's matriarchal in that we kind of take the mother's side. And my, through my mother, I can trace my history back to one of our warriors called Windradine, mm. who was um, the Windradine of the Bathurst and, and Cowra area where I was born. And uh, he, was, he fought against uh, Captain Arthur Phillip. And his soldiers when they went over the Blue Mountains and into Wiradjuri country. So I'm very proud that I can say that I'm a descendant of this this wonderful warrior. Where did you spend your early childhood? I was um, born in uh, in Cowra at in the Cowra Hospital, but I'm the youngest of eleven children. My older sister, uh, the older ones, were not allowed to go to to be born in the hospital. It was. It was against the law, and um, it wasn't until about the 1940s that our people were allowed to go even into the town or into the school. My older sister was, you know, one of the first uh, Aboriginal children that was allowed to go into the school. So we spend our time on the Aboriginal Reserve, Irambi, 
but I was, I guess I was lucky. I was born um, in the hospital in Cowra. And um, I remember my mother telling me, because if people are aware of Cowra, they, they have the Japanese prison of war camp, which is behind the hospital. And my mother was in, in the hospital when the, the Japanese prisoners broke out. But I always tell people, which they're not aware of, um, under the Aboriginal Welfare Act, um, our, our people were not allowed in the main part of the hospital. They were put on the veranda when they were allowed to go into the town to the hospital. And everything that the Aboriginal people used, whether it's a forks and knives, the sheets, the towels, whatever, had ABO written on it. And today, um, we Aboriginal people just hate that word ABO. So I hope there isn't anybody out there in Australia that uses that word ABO. It's derogatory to us. But it, it also segregated us. We were segregated on the reserve. We were segregated, you know, in the hospital. And um, thank goodness, I think it's a lot better these days. But yeah. you, you mentioned uh, Rambi Reserve, and this is where you physically spent a lot of your childhood after you were born. Can you paint a picture of a Rambi Reserve for me? Um, oh, okay. Uh, it's outside of town which most reserves were, they were outside of town. So we, the Aboriginal people were rounded up and put onto those reserves, or we call them like concentration camps, uh, or equivalent to concentration camps. So it was usually a few miles out of the town. And so we were segregated, uh, separated and segregated on those, on those reserves. And so we weren't allowed to own properties. We weren't allowed to own any um, livestock, anything like that. Because we were supposed to be looked after and cared for by the government, uh, and each state was, um, you know, had their own um, laws about that. So in the in on the Aboriginal reserve, which we always talk about it as being 32 acres. I know that's a little bit the acreage and everything may not be what younger people understand today, but we always talk about it as 32 acres. So is that, that was is the that patch very of large? Land. Oh, gosh. I need someone to help me now with that, <laughs> with that acreage. <laughs> right. it, wasn't, um, it wasn't that large. So if you look at it, there was three, four rows of houses. But we, most of us were all related on that, on that reserve in blood relation one way or another. And we talk about the Aboriginal kinship system. And so... For us, particularly as children, when we grew up on that reserve, I know I was happy because um, I knew that my parents were there. I knew our family was there. Our cousins were our best friends. Um, So we grew up with that very close-knit kinship system on the reserve. But what it was is we were totally controlled. So we had to have permission to go onto the reserve. We had to have permission to go off the reserve. Um, So... When I went to school, it would have been in the 1950s when, when I... And we had to walk to the, from the reserve into town. But then what happened is the town grew. Mm. So then the town grew out and then abutted those Aboriginal reserves. And so what was happening then, the, the government said, well, what we'll do is we'll move Aboriginal families into town. And so what we, in order to do that, they had to uh, say, they, they gave us a certificate and it was called a certificate of exemption. That exempted us from being under the Aboriginal Welfare Act. So it made us sort of honorary whites. We were no longer 
um, by that piece of paper, um, we were no longer Aboriginal people. But the laws around that then was because we weren't considered as Aboriginal anymore by that piece of paper or the law, it means that we can no longer have anything to do with our Aboriginal families. So we couldn't have anything, we couldn't mix, even have anything to do, to do with our parents and grandparents. A lot of the Aboriginal people call it the dog tag, but mm. yeah, the government gave us certificates so we can go into town. It's it's no surprise that um, under those conditions and with those changes, you eventually, or your your mother, driven by your mother, um, moved to the inner city of Sydney yes. um, when you were 11 years old. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about the transition and especially going to school in the city? I uh, remember, distinctively remember when we moved down to Newtown and my older brothers and sisters were already in Sydney and they were working in a, in a factory. It was actually a chocolate factory in Redfern. And most Aboriginal people could only get work in factories. My older sister was working on the railway uh, as a cleaner. So you got a job in the railway or you got a job in the factory um, because you, you need to think about the education history of our people that we weren't allowed to go into the school. So it, that's quite recent. It's in, in actually in our time that we weren't allowed to go into, into the schools. Um, and so when you think of the history, it was just very difficult for us to get a job. So even to get a job, you still need to pay, you know, you still need to get a house. Um, you still need to you know, help your children go to school. So... If your education level is is not um, very good, then it's difficult for you to get a good job. But my my older brothers and sisters were working at the the uh, chocolate factories, so they were able to rent a house in Newtown. Um, my mother f- supported me to go to school. Uh, I was very I remember being very lonely when I came down because I left all my cousins um, back on Irambi on on the reserve, but. I quickly um, fitted in because I love school. Um, when I was going, I first went to Erskineville Public School. I'm so proud. They've actually named one of the sports houses after me. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, so that's a great honour at Erskineville Public School. Um, but I did love school and I was good at sport and I was a good runner. Mm. So, Were there many other Aboriginal children at Erskineville at, at that time? No, there weren't very many. Uh, Do you remember Aboriginal... being aware of that? Was that something you reflected on? Not really. Um, no, I, I didn't really think about the Aboriginal issues because we, growing up on the Aboriginal Reserve, as I said, we were segregated and I still had all my family there. So it didn't. when I came down to Sydney, I know I didn't have my cousins and you know my friends who I played with at, uh, at Cowra, but um, when I came down, I, I think because I loved education and because of my mother's influence, because I loved education, I got on really well um, with the other kids in the school, even though I, I can remember, I can count on one hand the number of Aboriginal uh, kids that were at that school. Um, and certainly we connected, um, but I think because of my... Um, scholastic abilities and I loved English I loved uh, history I loved geography I loved science sorry but I hated maths <laughs> was no good at maths <laughs> Auntie Norma what can we play in tribute to this early period of your life well when I um, when I was uh, little I always remember the Doris Day 
song, K Sera Sera, whatever will be, will be. And it just always stuck in my mind that when I look at my history and my journey, I thought that was a fantastic song. Yeah. When I was just a little girl I asked my mother What will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me Que sera, sera Whatever will be, will be The future's not ours to see Que sera What will be, will be When I grew up and fell in love I asked my sweetheart what lies ahead Will we have rainbows day after day Here's what my sweetheart said Que sera, sera What will be, will be Now I have children of my own They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly Que sera, sera That was 1950s Doris Day singing Que Sera Sera, the first track taken from the collection of my out-of-the-box guests today, Wiradjuri woman, activist, businesswoman, and possibly the next member for the state seat of Newtown, Auntie Norma Ingram. Auntie, what was the foundation for Aboriginal affairs? I was, uh, I was still in high school, and my sister... Uh, and her husband, well, my sister's husband worked at the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs and it was run by Charles Perkins. It was set up and run by Charles Perkins, the the famous Charles Perkins who did the Aboriginal Freedom Ride that went around the whole, right around New South Wales, places like Moree and had a look at the racism that was out there at that time and I, I would argue that, you know, for some of it, it's still there. But, you know, the Aboriginal children in Moree, for example, was not allowed to go into the swimming pool. Uh, you can imagine how hot it is in Moree. And so uh, when the other children were in the pool, the Aboriginal children weren't allowed. So Charlie was a, a great activist. I think he might have even been, um, been a man before his time. He graduated from Sydney University and he had a lot of friends uh, at Sydney University and they set up the the, um, the foundation, very much supported by the unions, uh, what we call the Wolfies. And so my brother-in-law, Roy Carroll, was working down there as well as... And it, it, the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs would have been probably the first um, social organisation that supported Aboriginal people in Sydney at the time. Mm, what, so, what sort of function was it serving when you came to it? Um, well, of a daytime, uh, it was 
even Charlie was saying, you know, we tried to get jobs for Aboriginal people. As I talked earlier, it was difficult for Aboriginal people to get to get work. So it gave out food orders, food vouchers, um, and just looked at all of those social issues that I guess a lot of the NGOs do today um, for the people. This is what the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs did for the Aboriginal people in those earlier days. And so that was kind of that social issue. And then of um, Friday and Saturday night, they had dances for the teenagers. So my mother took me down um, to to meet Charlie and um, because my brother-in-law was working down there. And then on the Sunday night, they had what we call the concerts. And so anybody could get up and sing a song if they felt so inclined. What do we have today? We have karaoke. <laughs> uh, but in those days, we didn't have that. So people, um, there was a lot of talent around, a lot of, see if you remember, if you remember, sorry. Um, but what happened out on the Aboriginal reserves is that because we weren't allowed to go into the town, we entertained ourselves. And so a lot of the men particularly, um, you know, developed the bands. They even played gum leaves and all sorts of things to as musical instruments and so when we came to Sydney we didn't really have anywhere to go where we can um, you know just share that social time um, so the concerts and then on Sunday night we're all able to come together and, and just enjoy the, the singing and the entertainment and my older cousins were were um, great musicians and they were the Williams brothers and they were had fantastic voices uh, and i got to say this I suppose uh, I used to get up on stage and go go dance <laughs> <laughs> go go dancer come activist <laughs> come uh, political candidate yeah, so the foundation was fantastic for um, and I met so many uh, teenage uh, Aboriginal people who were teenagers at the time like the boys who set up the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra, you know, um, Gary Foley, Billy Craigie, my cousin um, Bertie Williams um, and Tony Curry sure. were the four men that went down to Canberra and set up the Tent Embassy. Well, was there a political angle to the work that the Foundation was doing? Uh, well, I think Charlie tried and he went on to a lot of media to talk about the political aspects of that. But it was highlighting, because that would have been 1964, um, I think, when Charlie set that up. And so you, you have to remember that, um, I keep on saying that, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, but what happened in 1967 is that we had the, um, the Aboriginal referendum. Before 1967, Aboriginal people were not counted in the Australian census. And so that's what the Aboriginal referendum was all about, and that's what the foundation really pushed. Um, and so uh, in 1967, we had to go to the rest of Australia. And now we're about 3% of the population. Before that, it was less than 3%. So in those days, we needed the rest of Australia to go. Um, a referendum has to be... Um, about you know ninety percent of each state in in Australia, plus within those states they have to have ninety percent of people to say yes to get a referendum over the line, um, and so that's what happened. Um, it was it's very difficult to get a referendum across, but they the rest of Australia said yes, um, we vote 
that Aboriginal people be counted in the census. And the other part of that was that um, each state was responsible for the Aboriginal people who were members who lived in those states. Um, and so this time it, the it was about the federal government taking control over Aboriginal affairs, which usually meant about finances. And so that sort of still still exists. So the, the two things, the, the Commonwealth government take responsibility for Aboriginal people in Australia and that Aboriginal people be counted in the, the census. And so the foundation for Aboriginal affairs was very much a place where Aboriginal people could go, they could meet, they could talk about these issues. Um, and there was another group called the FCATSI, the Federal Council for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People, which was the other national body that came together um, to talk to try and work with, you know, the government of the day uh, to allow us to be citizens of our own country. We weren't before that. Well, if there was a political angle to the work that you were doing in the early 60s or that the organisation that you were part of was doing, uh, the next song <laughs> definitely doesn't reflect it. This is uh, this is the Beatles. Tell me, why, why have you chosen this track? Oh, just because of that time of the social and, and as I said, with the dancers and the... the um, you know, the concerts and everything. And, and I was a teenager and this is what really really was uh, the thing for us uh, as teenagers at the time was the Beatles. The Beatles came out, but this song was just really stuck in my mind too that was that I loved. And of course, I love Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney. But yeah, that's, that's that song. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
by a four-piece I'm sure you've never heard of, The Beatles. It set the backdrop to the 60s for Indigenous activist and state election candidate Norma Ingram. This is out of the box. Norma, can you tell me a little bit about how the black rights movement started to develop, particularly in Redfern, around the turn of the 60s into the 70s? Uh, I think um, with what we'd learned with Charlie Perkins, who was a great activist, and there were so many of us young people who were, um, I guess, just coming off reserves and coming into the city and 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 the foundation allowed us to come together and meet each other and and at that time we we started we, as i said we were just looking at aboriginal citizens rights and and us becoming we aboriginal people becoming ab- citizens of this country and so the other part of that then was moving on to things like Aboriginal land rights but what was happening we had like the Vietnam War so there was protests against the Vietnam War uh, and we had um, a group of Aboriginal people uh, mainly men but there was one woman who went over to uh, Los Angeles and met with the the um, the Panthers the Black Panthers um, so they were quite famous but they were famous maybe for the reason of, of you know, fighting the system. And But what they did do in LA was they started programs for the community. Programs like rec- breakfast programs, um, health programs, a whole lot of, um, you know, programs that would help uh, the the particularly the young children who were going to school without breakfast. The, the genesis of self-determination. Can, can you take me through the the children's breakfast program because this well, is something that you borrowed from that that eventually yes exactly started so to when when the lads came back um we sat down and we talked and and um we it, we set up in redfin particularly um where we maybe i think we called it the black caucus and it brought aboriginal people together the lads had gone down to set up the Aboriginal tent embassy and we went down there fighting and then we were started to set up uh, places like the Aboriginal Legal Service, the Aboriginal Medical Service, the Aboriginal Housing Company, which is which is still there. The Medical Service certainly is still there, Aboriginal Legal Service. But we set up Marawina, the Aboriginal preschool, and it did start from the breakfast program. It was supported in the earlier days um, by the Wayside Chapel, and so then they uh, and a. Uh, my cousin Paul Coe was was very much a part of that where we used to be able to go down and talk the Wayside Chapel offered this um, opportunity for people to get up and talk and they had an audience and so the breakfast the Wayside Chapel just said to Paul well let's let's go and we'll set up the breakfast program Paul said yeah to the Wayside Chapel I should say and so that's what happened and we were running in a little church in Newtown in Wilson Street Newtown um Sorry, before that, we were running in the park in Georgina, the bottom of Georgina Street, Newtown. You started running a preschool in a park? The breakfast program. The breakfast program. Sorry, the breakfast program. So the Wayside Chapel had a car. They had tables and chairs and all of that. So um, we were able to do that in the in the park. It then started to get cold, wintertime, and so we moved into a little church up in Wilson Street in uh, Newtown, up near King Street. Um that got too small. Then we were offered a place in Shepherd Street uh, in uh, Chippendale. And 
the fella next door owned the carpet. Um, it was a big carpet factory. So we had a place next door and he renovated it for us. And he said, you can have the use of this building for nothing. So he built some tables and chairs and everything else because we said we wanted to run a preschool. So developed then from the breakfast program into the preschool Marowena. Um, that was running for quite quite a long time after that. So, and what sort of children did you have coming through Marowena? Um, in those earlier days, and my my th- two children at the time uh, were you know part of that first uh, children who went um, to Marowena, and it was my it was all Aboriginal children, but it was a younger one, so it was preschool age. But with the breakfast program. Which we were still running at the build, the new building. We were able to bring in the older brothers and sisters and give them breakfast before they went to school. That concept that happened, you know, from the Black Panthers in in Los Angeles. So we were able to do that, and then we um, able to stay with the young children, uh, the little ones. What are we saying up to, you know? before mm. they go to school. There was a huge volume coming through, right? Yes. Do you remember any of them individually? Do you, do you, do you think back and think about the difference that this sort of system, which was what totally unprecedented in Australia, this complete self-determination was kind of making a difference to, to the lives of these oh, kids? Absolutely. And I, did, I had mothers at the time coming, came, come to me and say, look, you know, my child went to Marowena. They're now at school. They're doing fabulously well. Um, now those uh, children are mothers themselves. Some of them are grandmothers, um, but they we do get a lot of feedback, and I still see a lot of the children who went to Marowena. I see them in the community, and they always talk about Marowena and how that helped. And um, unfortunately, we we don't have Marowena anymore, but it it doesn't it m- means that we still. I think that it's still important that we have. Um, those sorts of programs like Marowena, early childcare, uh, and we we were able to then run Marowena as a full day care, so before and after school as well. And we got a lot of comments from people saying, but you're segregating these children. And we said, no, we need to give um, our children a start in life. And what they were also receiving at that time was Aboriginal culture. So we were able to do look at Aboriginal culture. Um, we were able to even with our our um, our teachers, as as we were at the time, they were either auntie or uncle. We had bus drivers; they were uncles, um, and so we just carried on that extended uh, Aboriginal kinship system. And I think that also still carried through to our um, children who grew up to be adults and parents themselves. And so if you go. If you walk the streets of Redfern, I'm so proud that um, you know the the younger ones and even some of the older ones, when they see our elders, they show the respect by saying, "Hello, aunt. Uh, hello, auntie. Hello, uncle." And and that still carried through. And I think it had a lot to do with what we did in those early days at the preschool at Marowena. What was it like? bringing up your own kids in that environment because this is the time in your life when you just started to have kids of your own is that right yes and my youngest um was born while i was running marowena <laughs> so i remember i worked up to actually the day that i had him i went into hospital with labor pains and um and he i, I went back about six weeks later when he was born so he grew up 
his entire life, uh, younger life at uh, at Marowina. So, look, one of my children, he'll probably hate me for saying this, said, "I just saw how hard you worked, Mum." <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all they're all great, uh, great, and you know they're very much involved in the Aboriginal movement, uh, local community. Um, yeah, so so they, I guess they were brought up with that, and it just is automatic, you know that that they are Aboriginal cultural people themselves. What what can we play now, Auntie Norma? Well, I know. Um, again, it was this is probably around the seventies, and and we also <laughs> like we love the Beatles. We loved Creedence Clearwater. It was very popular at that time. And this one is uh, that I loved of the Creedence Clearwater was uh, looking at my back door. So you know, for me, I guess it's we were moving forward, but we'll never forget where where we've come from. You know, looking at our back door, we'll never forget where we come from, who we are as Aboriginal people. Um, but we, we do still need to move forward. It's clear water revival there. Looking out my back door. I do love the old stuff. Brought in by Auntie Norma Ingram. This is Out of the Box Live, FBI Radio 94.5 and on podcast. Auntie Norma, what was the, the Black Woman's Action Group? Uh, it was a, a group, uh, particularly by uh, Dr. Roberta Sykes. It's, uh, she um, set that all up and it was about donating um the public donated money uh, for uh, Aboriginal women, uh, black women, to uh, further their education. And at that time, uh, I was good friends 
um, we called her Bobby, Roberta, um, and I'd, I'd already had my my children, and I was thinking of going and studying law for some strange reason. Sorry, love all the lawyers out there. <laughs> but for some strange... I, we had a lot of Aboriginal people who were going through law at New South Wales University, and I thought it was the thing to do at the time. But then I thought, nah, I'll, uh, I'll go do teacher training. Because, as I said, I loved um, history and I loved English. So I studied secondary uh, English and history as a, a school teacher. And, you know, finished that one. And then so Roberta said, would you like to go to Harvard? And I went, you mean Harvard in America? Yeah, would you like to go to Harvard? Because she'd set the pace with all of that happening. And I said, mm, I, don't, I don't know. I can't go to Harvard. You know, these are the things that we, we say and do. Anyway, we, we filled in the application. Uh, and look, I've, I've had this philosophy in life that if a door opens, walk through, have a look, see if you like it. If you don't like it, you can always walk back out. So I said, well, look, let's let's give it a go. So we filled in the application. Um, it was accepted, but then I had to do a test, and the test was very biased American. Uh, so some, of, and I don't know how I passed, but I must have passed. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, I was accepted to go to Harvard, but I'd already had my three children here, and the young one, youngest one was quite quite young. Um, and maybe I didn't think it through as clearly as I should have at the time uh, because I then had to leave my three children here. So what um, the Black Women's Action Group was able to do uh, was they paid for my return airfare, so I kept the aeroplane ticket. Um, so the, the airfares plus the tuition... It's not cheap to go to Harvard. It's quite expensive. So they paid for the tuition. Um, and they also paid... I stayed in a, a dormitory where a lot of international students stayed. And they also paid for a 12-month food um, program. So at the dormitory, they had the food. And so we had breakfast and, and dinner. And Did, did um, you have any schemes of your own to make money? While you're no. Oh, I, I, I read about a, uh, a, a assignments that you used to write for other people. A pocket I money did, scheme. I did. Um, there was two things that we were able to do. Um, we were able to sit on the reception at, uh, um, it was called Gutman House. So that's where all of the students stayed. So we had to have a reception there and collecting mail and sorting mail. So I did that. So I got one of those American... What are they called? The numbers? You get a, actually a number if you want to work in America. So had one of those. And also it was in those early days that we didn't have computers and we had typewriters. And so I'd learned to type at school, which is I loved. Um, and so a lot of the students then paid me to type their assignments because you had to your assignment had to be typed up to <laughs> you know to hand in um. a side hustle of, of sorts <laughs> were there were there many aboriginal women at harvard in the 80s no no i was the only i was the only aboriginal person alone woman i was the only aboriginal person at that time that went through i did go through with another australian who ended up um she was a a, a police officer but she was a a non-Aboriginal Australian, 
mm. Australian. But no, I was the only one there. Um, what, what was that like? Did you feel uh, a pressure with that? or? Oh, the pressure that I felt when even being accepted to go to, to Harvard and I got there and I'm thinking, okay, what have I done here? What have I done? Uh, because... I knew in my my mind and my heart that I could not fail. I had to succeed uh, because being that first one, um, I felt the pressure on me that, you know, back home in Australia, I didn't want people to say, we gave Aboriginal people a chance um, and look, they've failed. So that sort of pressure was on me to make sure that I did, um, I worked hard, which I did, and I passed so that I can come back with the master's degree um, that I did in education. And so I worked really hard for the whole 12 months. So the school year starts in September and finishes in May the following year. So there was two weeks off uh, over the Christmas break. That's all I had. And I worked every day and every night. um, And I had Sunday mornings off. I took Sunday mornings off. But every other time... and I kept on saying to people my social life was in the library and that's where I met all my friends and we'd go across the road and have a cup of coffee but <laughs> mainly my social life and that's you know we, we caught up was yeah in the library what what can we play in tribute to your your triumph at Harvard Auntie Norma well it's kind of um yeah I'm really pleased that I graduated but this is, is a bit of a bit of a sad song because I did leave my three children back here with my mother and my sister. So, and at that time when I got there, it was Stevie Wonder. I just called to say, I love you. No news. No. 
I just called to say I love you on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box, and my guest is Auntie Norma Ingram, a founder of the Black Rights Movement. She is uh, now a Labour candidate for the state election. Norma, why did you decide um, now there was the moment, after almost five decades of change-making outside of the system, uh, that you would try your luck for Parliament? I've always been involved with politics, but from the community uh, standpoint, uh, you know, starting up Aboriginal organisations. Uh, I'm now the chairperson of the Wayanga uh, Aboriginal Elders Program, HK program. Uh, I've been on lots and lots of committees, and I was actually, I was actually on the um, City of Sydney uh, Aboriginal Advisory Panel, and was told that. I can only give advice, I can't make decisions, as being on the the panel. So I immediately said, well, I'm going to go where I can make decisions. I was uh, asked to join uh, the current Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney, um, Linda Scott, and asked me to stand on her ticket uh, for the local government. Now, 19... uh, Sorry, 1848 was when the City of Sydney was established, so they've never really had an Aboriginal person um, on as a councillor. And I kept on saying, you know, we need an Aboriginal person on council. So that was one of the reasons why I stood for local government, because I wanted to be uh, on as a councillor. And again, I was thinking about my dear mum, you know, wouldn't she be proud? And so I didn't uh, actually get, we didn't get enough um, votes to get me across and so then I had the opportunity and I was asked to stand for Labor for state seat New South Wales seat of Newtown and I thought about it for a half a day um, 
pre-selection was on the Friday. I was asked on the Monday. And I kind of had to make a quick decision. And I said, I'm coming back again to the door open philosophy of mine. And I said, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, what have we got to lose? Um, and so I did. And there, I, um, we applied. And then uh, a pre-selection I was so lucky that they wanted me to be their representative um, for the state elections. So I was very, very proud of that as well. What do you think, um, Auntie Norma, when you look at the plight of Indigenous people in the country today, in Redfern, beyond Redfern, where you've worked, people that you haven't worked with, how do you reflect on that? For Aboriginal people? Yeah. I... I've been involved in, in the Redfern Aboriginal movement since I was quite young, you know, like a uh, late teenager. Um, and I've seen how our people were treated. I've, I've seen how Aboriginal people were treated um, systematically by, by government, government coming and saying, we can do for you, um, not really working with the Aboriginal communities, not asking us, not being... Um, not having us as, as uh, around that uh, negotiating table or around the table to make the decisions. And when we look at Aboriginal self-determination, and I was told not to use the word self-determination um, by others, but um, this is what we want. We want, um, we want to be able to look at our communities. We want to be able to run the sorts of programs and the sorts of things that we need in our community that we know will work for ourselves, for our children. When you look at Close the Gap, for example, um, there are a number of areas in Closing the Gap and we've failed in most of them. I think there was one where... Um, we had a higher ratio, higher level of Aboriginal people graduating from year 12. So again, when we look at that history um, of uh, us being part of the education system and us being successful in the education system, it's quite recent. It is quite recent when you think of the 1960s, when Charles Perkins was one of the first Aboriginal people um, to graduate from university, 1960s. Um, and I think we have come a long way ourselves in, in terms of uh, Aboriginal people being successful in um, you know, graduating from school and graduating from university. I think we st um, generally we still have a long, long way to go. But governments cannot do this. Governments cannot fix what they determine as a problem because we never talk about it being an Aboriginal problem. It's probably a government problem, but it's definitely not an Aboriginal problem. But those issues around what we want for education, for our people, for housing, um, for, for good health, um, for our children being able to go from preschool right through and graduating, you know, we, we know, we as Aboriginal people, we know what, what um, we need to do to be successful. But definitely... Definitely, we need the appropriate resources and really the mandate uh, to be able to do that. And let us say to government, this is what we want. You provide us with the appropriate resources, whether that's money, whether that's people power, whatever, um, to do that. So I have seen a lot of changes, um, a lot for the good. I'm not too sure about Redfern, though, um, when our people have been really pushed out of Redfern. Um, and we are now over in the flats in Waterloo. 
So pushed out to the suburb of Waterloo. But even again, now we can see that there is a danger uh, with the changes in Waterloo, there is a danger that we could be pushed out further. Um, and we don't want to what we call, we don't want to be fringe dwellers. For many of us, this is where our social support is. This is where our cultural support is in the inner city uh, and our health support with things like the Aboriginal uh, medical service. So that's our support. So we don't want to be pushed out. We want to be able to stay here in our community. We want to be able to live comfortably like um, other people do. We want to be able to send our children to good schools and we want our really good health services for us. Auntie Norma, how can we finish this episode of Out of the Box today? What song are you going to leave oh, us look, with? Oh, look, for me, there's only one song to finish this off, and that's Treaty Yeah, Yotha Yindi. <laughs> I'd just like to say an enormous thank you to my producers, Bree and Nicole, and to you, Auntie Norma. Thank you thank so you. much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Let me go, 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 go
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.